Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Friday Night Counter-Attack. Uh, this one's going to be quite a, a good one for me because it's, it's kind of relevant to what I'm learning and studying about at the moment in, in football. And um, just to introduce Josh Prichard back again, it's been great to have a, a good response from your first episode, Josh. A lot of people came out, especially some Gillingham fans. I've never heard of like Gillingham fans following the podcast, but they're like, oh, yeah, we know about Josh Prichard. I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. Um, but Josh, good to see you again, my friend. How are you? Yeah, good to be back, Hamza. Thanks for having me on again. All yeah. well over here. So, no, my pleasure. Absolutely, it was great to have a conversation with you last time a couple of months ago. It was fantastic to learn a lot from you as well, and and that's kind of why I wanted to get you back on. And the, for for the first time, I'd say probably a guest wanted to come back on and talk about a couple of things. And I thought it was quite fascinating. We had that similar um, response, really, in terms of like the the type of academy structures there are in the United Kingdom how coaches are perceived as um, academy coaches in the United Kingdom as well, and really what it's kind of like for parents taking their kids into these academies uh, at such a young age and, and how it kind of has changed over the last 10, 15 years as well with the EPPP and everything like that as well. So that's going to be something that I'm going to be looking forward to asking you um, today. But Josh, first things first, I just wanted to know kind of your experiences of being in an academy. Of course, you're at the Manchester United Academy from a young age as well. Why don't you tell myself and, and the listeners listening how it kind of was for you when you first walked through the doors um, in Manchester United? Yeah, I mean, I think as early as I can remember, I've always been in a Man United kit. I've always, you know, played football. Yeah. And I've always been, I think the first memory I had was going to a Man United soccer academy thing. There's like soccer uh, summer camps yeah. at Timperley near Manchester Airport. Mm. And within a week of that, I was training at Littleton Road, the cliff. Um, I think I was six. I was training with under nines because I think I was as low as it went back then. Whereas now you've got under sevens, under sixes, whatever it may be. But yeah, from that, I didn't know any different. I didn't know how big it was to be an academy player at that age or at that club. I mean, looking back on it now, would I have done things differently? Probably. You know, I, I wouldn't have gone to one of the big teams because of the, I mean, not just saying from my point of view, the pressure, but, you know, when you've got three or four training sessions a week and then on a Saturday morning and you're playing the games on the Sunday, it doesn't just take it out of you mentally, physically. It takes out on your parents as well. They're travelling to training, taking you to training, coming back from training at all hours of the night and then, you're having to do homework on top of that. I mean, that's obviously 11, 12, 13. You know, I got shingles when I was 14 because I was I was not sleeping. I was training too much. I was doing too much work. I wasn't going to bed until one in the morning. That's waking awful up to at hear. Six. At 13, yeah. 14, you got shingles. That's awful. Was that due to yeah. literally just the demands of being a, an academy footballer, Josh? Uh, yeah, on top of... I mean, you think when you're 13, 14, you think you can do everything. You're indestructible. Yeah. And then, you know, you get swelling on your back and in your ribs and you're just like, what's that? Like panicking. They go to the doctors and say, oh, you've got shingles. It's pretty rare for someone so young to have it. But because of what you do and how much of it you do, like you're sleeping five hours a night, doing school all day, going straight from school to training. And then you're getting back at about, you know, half 11, 10, half, 10, half, 10, 11, and going back, having to do your schoolwork, and then you're going to bed at one in the morning. 
only to wake up again. And it takes its toll after playing what I was in the academy then for seven years. And, and that, that was, was your routine for seven years, literally of like secondary school, primary more, school. More than that, yeah. More than that. Uh, so when I first joined, I was six. So obviously there's nothing there. I think I started doing it about nine. So nine to 16, yeah. Seven years of just pure non-stop every single or every other day of training on top of that, you know, you, you play with your schoolmates as well in the team, you do a flex, you do cricket, you do rugby on top of being, you know, at the, at the time, the best of the best in England and probably in Europe as well. So, yeah, I mean, and then, you know, moving on to like the parent side of it, I was quite fortunate my mum and dad would be able to take me to and from training. But there, there was kids there that their mum and dad struggled to get them there. But at the same time, they lived it. They yeah. loved it. And, you know, I hope Jesse doesn't mind me speaking about him again, but like his parents, they lived for that Man United. My son is going to be a Man United player, which in all fairness to him, he did. Yeah. But he's the 1%. And that's yeah, been ish. that's been proven recently as well that it's like only one or two one between one and three percent of academy players actually play one minute of Premier League football. Yeah. From literally all the people that come through academies of all age groups, uh, all ethnicities, diverse uh, diverse backgrounds, a lot. Just three percent from all across the country in Premier League football. Yeah, I, I, first team. I think that's probably a bit exaggerated as well. I think, really? Yeah, definitely. I mean, going through the academy, like, the coaches. I mean, we were lucky United, all the coaches were A-licensed at the least, so they're very high standard when I was there. Yeah. But you, I can only imagine in the other clubs that you're going to have people who are level two, that B license or whatever they may have. And I, they've got favourites. And you'd be lying, any footballer who comes on here says that there's no favourites in the team, you'd be lying. Mm. Pure, you know, in our group... You had three or four of a team of 16, 17, 18 players who you knew were there every week. They were going to play every game. If there was an opportunity to move up, they were going to move up. You know, and that's fine. But then the other players, they get left out. And I remember a story of um, actually speaking to one of the coaches. I'll leave out the names because it's... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So they had like... Um, like a parents' evening kind of thing at United, where they go in and just tell you how the how your son's progressing. And uh, one of the lads' uh, dads went in and just said, "Look, give it to me straight. I don't need this card. Like on a like my son, how is he doing?" One of the coaches said to him, "Like imagine a ladder. You've got some players at the top of the ladder, some players on the middle of the ladder, and some players on the bottom of the ladder." Yeah. And the dad asked him, like, "Where's my son then?" Your son's not even on the ladder. Oh and, my god! Yeah, so you can imagine like these conversations happening, and that mm. was happening at, at my club. And it's like, well, he's probably 15, 14, 15, and he's getting told that. How do you deal with that? And it's, yeah, you can imagine it being difficult, extremely difficult, because it's something that, again, not even looking at the player's perspective for this kind of area just from the parent the fact that they've been investing so much time energy money into their kid playing football for Manchester United's academy 
I don't know how long that player must have been there, but if you give it a good number of years, the amount of time and effort, like we just said, and then for just for one coach, uh, coach to then just say, yeah, it's not on the ladder, it's not good enough. It doesn't look like he's going to continue going forward. Even just me just hearing that, pretending like I'm in the parents' shoes, it just took me aback. Mm-hmm. I'm just kind of there thinking, this is someone's life and it's someone's literally the start of their lives. And they're just kind of they're just saying, yeah, this is it. It's more or less done because there's so many yeah. other players out there. But he's still continuing to train and still continuing to do this, that and the other. But for some people, it works because it gives them a motivation to um, become a better player. Like I remember Andros Townsend being uh, reg- uh, being released from Tottenham and then he just refused to go home after being released at 15 and he continued to uh, work harder than, than usual, change his routine up and everything. And it worked well for him becoming a Premier League footballer. But not everyone had that mindset or has that mindset or will have that mindset when they're just being rejected at such a young age because it could just crumble your whole world away. The feet, Your feet could just like leave the ground completely, just fall off a cliff of some kind in a way. Awful. Yeah, yeah, and there's more than... I mean, that's just one story and I'm sure there's thousands out there that yeah. are probably worse than that. But I think what took me back was... The parent, he was the one that was kind of pushing it and pushing it because he was trying to live his dream through his kid, which is where all the pressure on the kid comes through. Does that make it worse, to be fair, Josh? I don't mean to interrupt again, but you know how you get a lot of these pushy parents, and I've seen that a lot now as well, with a lot of these um, uh, parents trying to push their dreams through their kids. And I've noticed it a lot more um, over the last couple of weeks when I've been coaching. It's been great. People want to do that. But again, I'm only coaching like six or 10-year-olds. I'm just there like... That can't be a good way of helping your kid develop. But did you see quite a lot of that when you were a kid? Um, literally just like in and around that area at Manchester United. Yeah. I mean, every other every other kid that was there, the parents always on the sideline. Yeah, I remember at one point there was parents getting in fights over why their son's not playing. Mm. But you know, I'm not sure I was at other clubs, but I can speak from my experience. But you know, at that age. It's just a game. Yeah. And it got to a point where the parents were told by the club, like, if you're going to come and watch, that's all you're doing. You're watching. You can't scream and shout from the sidelines. You can't do anything but clap if something happens. I understand it to a point, but, you know, football at that age, 7 to 12, 13, 14, is about having fun. It's about growing. It's about finding who you are as a footballer not it's not the World Cup final every Sunday do you know what I mean mm. it's and I think that's what's getting lost in translation from, getting a bit out of hand I'd say yeah yeah I agree with you out of hand because you know the pressure that kid's under his his world is only so big because he's only so young he doesn't understand you know the ramifications of what's happening and if you can if you're putting that pressure on him at that age, then, you know, it's detrimental to his mental health. Not that you'd understand that at that age. It's detrimental to his physical health. And going forward, like, if he gets told you're not even on a ladder of potential, more often than not, he's going to pack it in yeah, and not play again because he's lost all passion for it. And I think that's what's missing from the game today is passion. Yeah, I've, noticed, I've noticed that a lot as well. You see a lot of players playing. Uh, I was speaking recently to a, a footballer in Denmark and she was great. She was telling me about how she likes to express herself on the field, about how she really enjoys the way that she plays football and she wants to be a maverick. And I'm just, I was just there thinking on that on recording. I'm just there like, 
a lot of these players, they're kind of nowadays when you see that there are a lot of these kind of E triple P type of players that just fit the system. They'll fit different types of systems and different ways of playing. But you don't see a lot of players. Yeah, robot. You don't really see them having a lot of fun. You don't really see them like showing a lot of character on the pitch. Their social medias are managed by different people as well. So you're kind of just there thinking like these are the kind of players that we're churning out. There may be better quality players and it's helped with England's national team, which is great. No complaints about that. But you're just kind of thinking it's losing a bit of an identity um, in football nowadays and as well. And it's quite worrying because you're just there thinking, do kids kind of lose the love of football at such a young age after playing such um, such high demanding games over a period of their, their youth, really? What would you what would you say to that, Josh? I mean, from from my experience, I lost most of the passion for it the day that I started getting paid to play. Yeah, um, and I'm I know quite a few other players that say exactly the same thing. It's at the end of the day, it becomes a job, and mm. it's that's purely from you know the coaching and the philosophy of we need you to be this type of player to be able to progress onwards. And that's why we don't get players like your Paul Gascoigne's, your, I'm not trying to, like anyone in that kind of ilk where yeah. they're just rogue mavericks. They'll do something special. They might be a bit Larry off the pitch. Okay. But that's the world we live in now. Yeah, like cancer, a, modern player like I would, a modern player, I would say, is someone like Meza Ozil. When if you realise around the Premier League era when he was coming in, it was great to see him play. He would do things out of the ordinary. He did that little cheeky, I don't know if you remember, but he'd do a shot where he'd like bounce it on the pitch. Just yeah. by like hitting it, bounce and it just bounced up again. And that was a, another way of playing it through. And I just thought, wow, some of the things he was doing was incredible. And then a few, uh, on his last couple of years of being an Arsenal player, you saw a lot of these new number 10s coming into the Premier League where they'd be working back. They'd be playing in multiple different systems. And it was it was kind of, Gone are the days of luxury players in the Premier League because you kind of need all 11 players to be up for a run, up for a fight, up for a basically a bleep test for, for 90 minutes. And yeah. that wasn't working for Wenger, Emery, or unfortunately, Mikel Arteta. And um, there were other reasons why Meza Ozil um, ended up leaving Arsenal. But it was just one of those things that you did, the people didn't appreciate Meza Ozil until he left. And I've said that a lot on this podcast, that a lot of people never get appreciated until they leave a certain area or they retire or something like that as well. And you kind of see that now, I would say, the fact that a lot of people, you want to see them enjoying football, having a good time, because fans reciprocate from that as well. And, and they can they can see when a player's enjoying it and not enjoying it as well. And it's just one yeah, of those things. Well, just... I would say, about, sorry to cut you off, but I'd no, just say about it. the fans in yeah. general, not to say it's everyone, but fans are fickle. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, it's a crowd, men, it's a herd mentality where if one section of the stadium who doesn't appreciate or understand what a Meza Ozil type is trying to do, then it's, ah, oh, he's rubbish. He's not trying hard enough. He's not doing this. But the stats would show you he's not running any less than anyone else. He's just smarter, mm. more clever than anyone else who's doing anything on the pitch. And if you don't see what he's doing, that's not his fault. You've just got to trust that he knows what he's doing. Yeah. And look at Adele Tarrat. Yeah. Maybe not a, a great shining example, but he could win a game on his own, which he's shown at um, QPR when he got them up to uh, Prem. But he, you know, was, he was literally just like a, a shooting star, like you said in the championship. And people see his highlights reels now, and people, you always see that on social media, 
you'll never forget about Adel Tarat. But the fact that QPR fans appreciated his genius because he was playing for them as well, and Tottenham didn't. That's why Tottenham got rid of him. And it was just yeah. the fact that he got to shine in a way where Neil Warnock, the manager at the time, allowed him to shine. And a lot of managers nowadays don't really appreciate having a maverick in their team because they just want them to be another one of their system players. And that's what's working in the academies at the moment. They're all coming out exactly the same as opposed to having a bit of flair, having a bit of um, arrogance about them coming through and actually showing a bit of um, different determination as well, which is why I would say personally. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that's the same for you know, any modern player coming out now, barring your Declan Rice, who I think as a player, unbelievable. But even in like when he's doing his interviews or the um, the Gary Neville podcast, for example, yeah, the overlap like he comes across so well, just because he he doesn't he's not lost himself in the whole transition from leaving Chelsea, going to West Ham, and forcing his way into the team like he's still who he is and I think that's because the coaching team at West Ham has allowed that and you've seen from the past all the players that come through West Ham you know you got Joe Cole Declan Rice Michael Carrick Leo Ferdinand the Carlos Bacanio was a player that they had as yeah. well who's just a maverick as well got to yeah. do what he needed to do and that's what we loved about the Premier League in those early 2000s late 90s these kind of players yeah. were coming through and it was it was genuinely beautiful to see really yeah, and if you look, if you watch Premier League years on Sky, like there's games and put like the one I watched the other day, Sheffield Wednesday, Benito Carboni. Mm. Some of the things he was doing, I'm just like, have you seen this guy? Have you watched this guy? And like how he didn't get a move to a, a bigger club from Sheffield Wednesday, I'll never know. But that's, you know, that's here, not there, because obviously the skying wasn't as great then, the coverage wasn't as great. But Players like that, they're one in 10,000, one in 100,000. You know, like me or you, we could coach a team in the way that most Premier League clubs coach their players at the minute. But what does that give anyone? Yeah. Really? Because realistically, what we're kind of learning at the moment, in my coaching journey at the moment, Josh, is the fact that what's more important as, as a youth coach? Is it more important to win games and be uh, recognised better as a manager, as a coach? Was it better to let your kids develop as human beings and as people express themselves and show a bit more um, character when they're playing but lose the game? And a lot of people that when I was in a sports were saying it's all more about losing the game but letting the kids have fun because when you break it down into the humane aspects of it, it's the fact that a lot of these kids, they have a lot of pressure on their shoulders from a, a young age straight away from their parents, from their social groups, from their uh, academies even as well. And if you're the coach that can take the pressure off their shoulders, even for 90 minutes, it's something incredible because then they can go out, have fun, relax and play. Maybe they do a step over too much and get tackled. Maybe they try a roulette, but they just lose the ball completely. But it's the fact that they're actually trying stuff and rewarding players for actually trying something different and showing a bit of character. And in a way, a bit of um, bit of a showman in a way as well. A lot of people, you, you love to see a showman on, on a on a football pitch, but you don't see that nowadays as well, which is really sad. And even, this is off topic completely, Josh, but there was a player, I think in Liga, Paqueta for Leon. he did a Rabona flick and he got booked for it. And I'm just there like, if you're getting booked for a Rabona flick nowadays, that's just embarrassing. And that's just how the footballing world is at this moment in time. But realistically, 
what would you kind of do if you were the coach of a, like an academy team? It wouldn't matter if you won or would it really matter if you won, which made yourself better? I mean, winning's great, always is. But yeah. if I'm coaching anyone younger than 15, it's more about having fun, the performance, making sure you're trying to do the right things. Yeah. I mean, I would rather lose a game when I know my team has given everything. They've tried to do the right things. They've tried to express themselves. They're not just robots who play in a 4-4-2 system who have to be so like they're worried about making a mistake. Like, it doesn't matter. You're 15. Like, it doesn't really matter until you're 17, 18, 19 when you're starting to develop as a, as a man where you're playing against men that results actually matter because if you can't express yourself when you're 15 and the result doesn't matter, how are you going to do it when you're 17, 18 and you're playing in front of 20,000 people? Mm. You won't. Yeah. And so, that's one of I the... Mean, that's... Sorry, carry on. So that's just my point of view and from my experience where I've played with players who have crumbled in front of... The, in training, unbelievable. They'll do whatever you want. But then when it comes to the final third, expressing yourself and having your own kind of voice in your head that says this, this and this, oh, let's try that, go on to a pitch. Nope. Not allowed not to do it. Yeah, I mean, it's not that they don't know how to do it. They're just scared of... The reaction. Uh, yeah, the reaction from the crowd, from the manager, might not play again. It's, I mean, the best players I've played with, they don't care. It goes in one ear and out the other and they do their own thing yeah. as long as it's within a kind of guideline rather than a set of rules. Because how I see it is the fact that as a, an academy coach, you're not just trying to produce the best players, you're also trying to produce the best people because there is a big reality. And I think a lot of academy coaches need to know this, not just coaching football players. You're actually coaching people. You're actually coaching men or women who the majority of them, if we're being blunt, and I think you're, you're, you're on the right kind of track with me as well, Josh, the fact that we're being blunt about this is making it easier for us both to talk about it. But the fact that a lot of these players won't actually make it past um, the academy or into the reserves or maybe make it into professional football or even semi-professional is the fact that you're, you then have a responsibility to develop them as people, not just as players. And when you're developing them as people, they have to be good people on the pitch and off the pitch as well. Because there's so many people out there who you will know and I will know in terms of, oh, yeah, I was in this academy from this age to this age. I could have gone pro. This could have happened. This could have happened, but it didn't. But you're just there kind of thinking, like, with some of these coaches, it could have just been one of those things where they could have just given a lot more thought in terms of the aftercare. And I know Crystal Palace have done something recently in terms of their aftercare system, which is great. But I'm just there kind of thinking, where was this 10 years ago? Where was this 15 years ago? Because it could help so many other people who, are, who have been struggling and they don't make the grade. They don't cut it in the academies. And then, again, like you've said before, it's someone's world. It's their parents' um, responsibility to help them get back on their feet. But their world has just crumbled beneath their feet. Yeah, and most people, or some people, depending on what your parents do, like they might not have the skill set to be able to lift you back out of a hole that you're in. Exactly. They yeah, wouldn't I was, to with that. Yeah, exactly. And that, I was lucky where... You know, I went, I didn't get a scholar at United, so I left, went straight down to Fulham. So I was lucky where I didn't have to go into a hole. I was just 
in one colour one day and in another shirt the next. Mm. So for me, I was lucky, but you know, there's loads of players and countless examples of like no aftercare for it's like, well, cheers, yeah, you're not good enough now, thanks, bye. Yeah. And that's all it is. But I I was reading about the Crystal Palace. Uh, like, I don't know what they called it, but the, it's a three-year plan for after people have finished at Crystal Palace. And I think that's definitely the right place to go. Yeah. But I do think it's 10 years too late. Yeah. Because I'm thinking it's still better late than never, but it's way too late in terms of how they should have started it. It should have been something that instead of spending an extra 10, 15K a week on a football player's wages, that could be used in your academy a lot better um, going forward as well. Because you see so many people that could really use that help and could really develop it as well. Because there's yeah. um, there's one former academy player from Fulham, I think. Uh, I think his name is Max Noble. So yeah. um, have you heard of him? Have you heard of his story? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've not heard, I, don't, I know of him through my time at Fulham, but I've not heard his story. Yeah, because he was, again, someone who's also said something about uh, football academies that are really toxic environments as well. And they're looked after by, by coaches and men who don't really care for them as well. And there's not really much care in football as well. And he was telling, he was telling, I think he was talking to Sky News about it. They had a documentary a couple of years ago about how when he was like 16, he was getting painkiller injections in his knee at 16 years old. And he was hiding his niggles and his injuries just to play through the pain, having like four or five different strappings on just to get to training and to train, um, just to kind of show that he's still putting up the fight. And it's just one of those things that you're just kind of thinking, this is a 16-year-old who's going through his GCSEs at the same time as literally trying to get into this Fulham Academy and continue to stay in that academy as well. But it's just one of those things that, um, for Max, fortunately, it actually works out really well for him because he started a clothing brand called uh, Certified Sports, where a percentage of the sales will actually get donated or do do, do get donated to help um, injured and former athletes psychologically as well. So it does help with their mental health, which is a brilliant, brilliant cause for his Certified Sports as well. Again, I don't know him, but it's just one of those things I was reading about before we yeah. recorded this, I thought it would be quite cool to share as well. Yeah, I mean, that's great. I mean, if we could push that out there so more people know about it, all the better, really, isn't it? Yeah, because it goes to show that even if there is like one person who's like failed in the academy and listen to our podcast now, there is other ways and there are, there are more avenues that you can go down and develop yourself going further as well. Because uh, one of my friends who we've had on one of our earliest episodes, uh, Danny, he's at uh, Charlton's Academy as a goalkeeper. So again, he was then build. He won't mind me saying this because um, I know that we're, we're cool on that terms. But he was telling me about how um, he was on Charlton's books and he was being touted as like England's next best young keeper type thing as well. And then he had like an injury in the shoulder. He couldn't then continue playing. And then um, again, his world kind of crumbled. But at the time, I didn't understand it the way I understand it now. Because like one of my friends is like, it's way worse than just losing the job. Because then when you break it down, the fact that Again, you're buying all this equipment. You're going all the way to certain areas that you may have to go by yourself. For some people in some areas as well, not just like London or Manchester or Liverpool or Birmingham, in like all of these smaller areas, these smaller cities like Stoke or Norwich or um, Gillingham, for example, as well, when you're in the sticks and you have to make these journeys by yourself or with your parents, that's a lot to deal with for the parents, for yourself. Again, we keep banging on about it, but it's actually very, very serious in terms of how a lot of these people have to go through their daily lives and actually keep some money aside for, the, for their kids to kind of help fulfill their dreams. But again, it doesn't yeah. happen a lot, which isn't the best of things um, going forward. 
Yeah, I mean, just to echo your point, that is the kid's identity. Yeah. He is nothing else other than a footballer at that age. And if there's someone takes that away from him, what is he? To yeah. him, he's nothing. But to everyone who knows him and loves him, you know, it could be the best person in the world. It could be the next doctor, or it could be a lawyer, or a fireman, or policeman, or whatever. Mm. But to him, his identity is: I am a footballer. That is all I am. And that's the thing as well. That's why we need to see more of these kind of aftercare systems as well in terms of how they can help people who have failed in these academies haven't lived up to the mark, help them look for other clubs in the local area or help them in terms of how they can develop themselves as people properly as well. And it literally starts from literally the coaches. So again, that's just me as like a brand new coach in the industry. Uh, again, I'm perfectly fine with coaching grassroots at the moment. I love it. It's great. It's a lot of fun. And it's around my kind of timetable as well, which is great. So I'm really happy about that. But there are a lot of people that I know who are coaches listening to this in academies. So even for them just to listen and just take a notice in terms of, you know what, there's so much more we can do together collectively because it just starts with one person changing their perspective on how they can talk to people, how they um, view people. Because words do kill, Josh. Words really do kill when you're talking to people and especially in such a brutal environment as we know in the sporting industry, let alone um, the footballing industry as well, which you would know as well. But Josh, I kind of wanted to ask you um, on on this next part of the podcast is just in terms of, was there kind of a coach or any kind of coaches that made you feel like you could do more in football or was it just kind of a, oh, you're just another player in in my squad. So I'm just going to kind of treat you as everyone else. Because you mentioned about favourites earlier. So I just wanted to know a bit more about that, if you could, Josh. Yeah, um, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, Gary Brazil. He yeah. was my uh, he brought me into Fulham in uh, by the under 18s. Uh, he's now he's the head of develop, head of youth development at Nottingham Forest, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he was the first one who kind of sat me down and said, "Look, you're going to have a chance here. We're going to do everything we can to get you into that first team." And you know, within five months I think I was in the reserve team was training with the first team so he was the first one where I thought right he believes in me I um, I've got a chance to I've, there's a couple of us I think there's one I had at United uh, John Hill who took me to Norway when he moved over there on loan yeah. with, when I was at Fulham uh, Kit Simons, who took me over to Wales to do my under 21 appearances. Well, Gary Brazil was the first one. Yeah, after being released from United, uh, going to Fulham, he was the first one who really lit a fire under me and pushed me to do more than I was than I thought I was capable of. And did that make you kind of just like push your chest out and think, you know what, this guy really believes in me. I'll work a bit a bit harder, that 5%, 10% extra, I'll give it on the pitch because these are the kind of people who are putting confidence and instilling it into me. Was that kind of how it worked for you, Josh? Yeah, I think, well, I wasn't really a confident, you know, 14, 15-year-old anyway. I was quite a shy person. I'd never go out of my comfort zone to, you know, push myself until I went to Fulham and spoke to him. Yeah. And he kind of said, like, yeah, you're the real deal. This is what we think. And that kind of made me feel like I was the man. 
Yeah. And I've, I've never had that before. And you know, from him telling me that, I kind of progressed a lot quicker. And I think I was ready to be put in the first team at 17, 18. Obviously never got that chance there because of you know, whatever reason. Could go into it and uh, another mm. podcast give you another hour. Yeah. But the uh, yeah, that was the first time where it all kind of clicked for me. And like I said before, it wasn't about fun and games anymore. It was right. I believe that I have potential in myself, like, and I know I can do it. And it was more a job than it was having fun. Yeah, so it's just one of those things that you mentioned before as well. Like, it's just you've lost that kind of passion for it at that stage. You just want to continue just doing it for the sake of uh, developing yourself, but not in any kind of fun aspect or uh, enjoyable aspect, like you mentioned as well. Yeah, but I think maybe there were obviously there were times like, in the changing rooms where you're having a bit of banter with the guys and yeah, absolutely, yeah, all that stuff's fun and you're living on your own. You're in London for the first time and. You, you're doing all those things. But when it came down to the football, it was, that's my goal. I'm not going to stop until I reach it. Ultimately, yeah, ultimately, I did reach it. You know, I've made my international appearances. I played all over Europe. I played in League One, played in the FA Cup, played in the League Cup, did all the bits and bobs. But, yeah. you know, I think that's where that age of 16, 15, 16, 17, where you're going from academy to full-time scholarship and pros or whatever it may be, those are the years where you need someone to back you and say, yeah. look, you're ready, you can do it. And you know, I'd say probably 75 to 80% of the kids going from academies to scholarships don't have that. Yeah, they might have that on the initial like recruitment phase, but then once they get into the club and they understand what it really is, yeah, you know, that's when it kind of all dissipates. Yeah, absolutely. Because I'm just there, uh, kind of thinking from from my point of view as well as a scout. Because even when I like re- uh, recommend like players to go to training for the club that I'm scouting for, even I'm just there, uh, kind of giving them like a good luck message on the, on the days I'm going in and kind of showing them like you know what. Um, just go in there, have fun, do what you're doing because we've seen something in you that we think that you could benefit um, from working with these kind of players as well. And I think the coaches here will like you as well. Even someone just giving five, ten minutes of your time, um, I, I genuinely believe that would do the kid a world of good because I've noticed that firsthand as well in terms of coaching. Like, um, recently, I, get, I got back to my, my normal grassroots team after like two, three weeks of just like focusing on university and stuff. And then like all the kids remembered me, remembered my name, they were smiling. I'm just there, like, I feel a bit embarrassed because I'm just there, like, I, I didn't need to let them down for an hour. But I'm just also there just kind of thinking, like, the fact that they remember me, they remember the games that I had on for them, the way that I was coaching, um, my little trigger points of saying, like, freeze and stop and things like that. That worked really well. And it's just when you're kind of looking at this from an academy point of view, the academy coaches probably have a lot of pressure from their gaffers as well in terms of they need to churn out the next best thing. The academy pre- uh, pressure for coaches is, is is quite visible from what I've seen from when I've done my little uh, like visits days and and um, what's the term shadowing days as well at some of these yeah. clubs, which is great. It was a great experience to see it, but you're then just kind of thinking um, they've got one eye on them from someone above them in terms of oh who can I get into the next stage or who can I get into the reserves or we have to cut a budget because of um, recovering from the pandemic and we still have to get 
financially stable, but we have to cut some of these players. Who can we do? So you've got a lot of pressure just building from the top and it just funnels down. And unfortunately, the people at the bottom are those academy players, which, again, hurts a lot. Um, but obviously, you would know more than I would in terms of when you're kind of there in and around your friends, does it kind of feel like a um, a really kind of bad moment when like one of your friends was to leave or he kind of doesn't make it at a certain age group, Josh? How does that kind of work? I mean, so my team at United, we were together from nine to 16, like the core 13, 14 players. So we knew each other inside and out. Yeah, There might have been one come in and one go like for six months, but... I was lucky in that fact that we had so many, so many of us together for so long. Mm. When we got up to scholarship years and when it really, really mattered, you can tell the ones who aren't going to make it very quickly. Mm -hmm. And you can tell when it's a surprise when someone leaves. Okay. So, from my experience, there was. Um, it was the last year of the, the scholarship, so the second year, and it was deciding whether we, someone was going to get a pro or not. And there was a few players where you're like, "Oh man, how is he? Is he? If he's not got one, how am I going to get one?" Yeah. And then there was players where you're thinking, "Right, how has he got one, and the other lad hasn't?" Like, but as far as that goes, I mean. You never really know what coaches or the head of youth development or their chief scout or whatever. But you never know what they're thinking. There's no kind of... There's no criteria or there's no boxes to tick. There's, there's nothing that you can do as a player that you can then go, you know what, I'm trying to get in for next year as, as a scholar. What can I do to get there? They'll never then just reveal what they want because they could look at certain characteristics, traits, skills even. And you're just there kind of thinking well, I just need to play the best that I possibly can do and listen to what my coach is saying. But your coach could be giving you the wrong information to what fits the criteria as well. Yeah, I mean, they do have like reports and what they look for, search criteria for players. Yeah. I think the problem is at the minute, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was English players. Now it's from every corner of the globe. Really? So, at, at academy level as well? Yeah, so uh, my first year at Fulham, we had a player from Italy, Spain, Switzerland, Australia, Ivory Coast, Finland. Um, so a couple of French lads. Like it was just endless the amount of people from other countries that were coming in, mm. and yeah, you, know, you you knew that because they had bought those players, unless they were absolute bobbins. You were they were going to start in the big games. Yeah. So like youth cup games. Um I was starting in a reserve team. Um, but I couldn't get a look in for the under 18 team. Okay. How does that work? Because the reserve team manager obviously liked me more than he did the other ones, mm. but he didn't have the you need to play these players because we've invested in them. I get you. Yeah, it's just like one and two has to equal three because you have to let these players play because uh, in a way you're kind of overcompensating there as, as an academy. You're just there kind of thinking we've invested a lot from a lot of these players from uh, Europe, from Northern Europe, Scandinavia, uh, Africa. Crazy that we can't play them. But then you're just kind of, kind of thinking, what about the players that we actually do have? That's quite fascinating to hear as well. The fact yeah, that so I'll give you an example. So 
we played in a youth cup game. Uh, I wasn't in the in the um, in the squad at all, mm. but I was play. I played for the reserve team three weeks before every week, and three weeks afterwards as well. So six reserve team games, as well as playing for the under 18s on a Sunday, uh, Saturday. Yeah, but I couldn't. I couldn't get in the youth cup squad. I remember we played youth cup squad Man City away. Okay, and we had West Ham for the under 18s on a Sunday. Uh, Saturday, yeah, Saturday. And mm. um, none of the youth teams' cup squad was in the team for that West Ham game. The only, mm. the only player that was in that squad from the youth cup by eighteen was me. Yeah, I remember we lost three-one on the Saturday, but that's because we had you know, under sixteen players playing players who weren't good enough for the youth cup team. Not at the level yet as well. Yeah, and I remember the manager coming in after the game and saying, like, all oh, you lot coming into my office saying, Why am I not in the youth cup squad game? The only one who um the only one who should be knocking on my door and asking why was me, because I knew I was better than the players playing in that team against Man City. I knew I you know, you could tell from the team, like, why is he not in the squad? Like you could feel that. Yeah. But then in the reserve team where the manager doesn't have those restrictions on him, you know, I was playing every game, every minute of every game. So I think that's just kind of the politics of academy football that you don't know about and you don't see or parents don't see or players who are going into that don't really understand. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's just like you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast as well, Josh, the fact that coaches will have their favourites. There are, there are politics involved because, again, it's more about from what I've seen, and there is a trend of it's just about trying the coach trying to big themselves up and trying to show off their ability to their managers and to their um, superiors as well. Because you're just there kind of thinking like it doesn't make sense. And I'm pretty sure the listener, the avid listener, uh, the casual football fan listener will be listening and thinking, yeah, it doesn't make sense either because there's so much that you've explained in that way. And it just, the pieces just don't fit to me. It really doesn't. Yeah. I mean, I was speaking to a coach the other day who's coaching abroad at the minute. Mm. He said the the biggest problem with English football, not just coaches, like board members, directors of technical directors, whatever, egotistical. Every there's no team anymore. It's look at me, look what I'm doing, look how good I am. Mm. There's I think the only club I would say that aren't like that at the minute are City. Burnley, Leicester, Brighton. They're the only ones where you can see there's no ego. It's a team. There's one philosophy. Everyone plays to that philosophy. Yeah. From board members down, they understand what it is. I mean, and he went on to a few other things about, um, we were talking about Man United and what their kind of board situate the boardroom and their kind of management team situation is. Mm. They were saying that they talk about the Man United DNA. None of them have been there long enough to understand what the Man United DNA is. Like, the players goes all the way down to the players, boardroom, staff, coaches, all of that. Yeah, I mean, there's probably, I mean, you look at the ones that have come through the academy, like Jesse, Marcus, um, Tom Heaton, Paul McShane. 
they understand what the Man United way is because they've been there since they were 10, 11, 12 years old when like, the core values of the club were put into it. Exactly. But now, I mean, you've got your head of youth developments that kind of, they've come from different clubs and they're trying to spur that they know the Man United DNA. They don't. Very simple. They don't. They just guess at it or they've seen what the person before them did. Just, there's no it's one like Chinese whispers in a way as well. They would just protect, they would just pick up certain things and certain elements, but not everything. They won't grasp yeah. the concept completely as well. Exactly. Exactly. I, I see it in terms of uh, I'm not going to get many uh, fans from saying this, but it's, it's true. It's the fact that we're in this kind of LinkedIn era of, like you mentioned before, everyone look at me, look what I can do, look what I can offer you, and look what I've offered all these people in terms of showing off on social media, and and that's what happens a lot on LinkedIn. You see it in terms of oh, my academy did this today or, or this player did this today after I told him I could do this for him and he did it. And it's, it's incredible how it kind of works in favour of coaches, but it never really works in favour of players, unfortunately. The fact that they're, they're, the, the coaches are there showing off, trying to big themselves up, like we said before. But there's no real way of then... Because the players will always get criticised at academy level, youth level everything it's not nice it's not great because football really again to, to to go a bit deeper into this is a tool for people to feel happy to have an escapism in, in a term of way as well even in the academy level where i think it should be as well like you said from a certain age just when they start to play properly that's when it should be about winning and this is kind of what i've been um, learning recently as well the fact that it really has to do with the mentalities of what you can do and just like you mentioned the united way some people are just guessing what the United Way is at Manchester United. So it doesn't really correlate and it doesn't really resonate for a lot of people as well. Yeah, exactly. I, mean, I agree with everything you said. So. No, that's There's okay. Not much I can add to that. What we'll do is we'll end, this, we'll end this podcast with at least one positive note as well from yourself, Josh, which would be good yeah. as well. Um, so what I kind of like to know, and I think some of the listeners would like to know as well, is that just in terms of when you were playing in the academy, what were your top three moments, if you had any, of playing in the academy at Manchester United? And what would you kind of recommend to someone in terms of if they're playing in the academy, if there is a parent listening to a kid who's in the academy or wants to get into it? What kind of three things uh, benefited you from playing in the academy? And the fourth one was what could you recommend to parents or kids in academies at the moment? Uh, I think the first one is you make lifelong friends. Yeah. I still speak to most of that team now and it helped me because they went through the same thing that I went through. Yeah. You know, there's not a lot of people that can say that they've done what I've done or even understand where I'm coming from. So I think that's the first thing. You understand, you have an understanding with your team and then you get lifelong friends out of it. Absolutely. Um, the second one is don't do too much too early. If you want to go play with your mates, go and play with your mates. Right? Sunday league, at school games or whatever it is, don't put too much pressure on it because ultimately you'll lose passion for it. You won't, it just won't enjoy yourself anymore. So I think that'll be my second point. Yeah, it feels more of a chore of anything as well. If you just yeah. to play and you don't enjoy what you're doing. Yeah, that's from a parent point of view, I suppose I've got kids now as well. Hmm is don't put too much pressure on them. If they don't want to do it, 
don't make them do it. It's got to come from them. Absolutely. You, all you have to do is support them. And then my third point would be the experience that you get from being at these academies is especially from you know, if you go to a tournament abroad. So we played like Portugal. You know, we played in Spain, played in Holland. Uh, even my time at Fulham, we went over to Switzerland, did Holland, Germany. You know, there are things that the average person won't be able to find. Yeah. Those experiences, those memories that you create as well, the, the bonds that you create as well, is something yeah. really special. And it's something that, again, only certain people will ever know about because that's, that's literally how it would be um, going forward as well, which is, which is fantastic. But yeah, I really like this conversation as well. It was quite insightful for me. Again, still new in this coaching journey myself, but the fact that you actually have had a lot of these experiences that you still have yet to tell us, I'd like to learn a lot more about it on another episode coming up as well which would be um, great for me. But as long as you're happy to do it, I'd, I'd love to have another conversation about literally just the academy, um, what you can, what you think we can do better, how we can develop it further. Because we've, we've kind of just scratched the surface, I think we have, Josh, with, with this episode, which is really fantastic to hear. But I know there's so much more that we have to learn about and we have to discover. And I'm pretty sure there'll be one or two of your friends who would like to come on and have a conversation about it as well going forward. Yeah, definitely. I've already put the feelers out. So I'm just waiting for them to come back to me. Brilliant. No, I'd love it. Like I said last time, if Jesse Lingard is free in the summer, I wouldn't mind having a conversation with him as well. It should be fantastic. It'd be like, Josh, I tackled you in that Wales versus England game. We could only ask. Yeah, it's worth the ask. It is. It definitely is. Um, but no, um, Josh, I'm from, from myself, thank you very much for being so open and being so honest with your conversation. I know for some things it may not have been the easiest of conversations to have especially after reliving a lot of these memories just through an hour podcast with us. So thank you very much for your honesty and for your time. Everyone, thank you very much for listening as always. It's been great to have a conversation with Josh and hopefully we'll get to have a, another podcast sooner rather than later, which would be fantastic as well. Everyone enjoy our new mental health series as well, which is out now, The Beautiful Mind Game, where we're divulging more into the mindset and the development of um, athletes, of people, and how we can kind of give back in terms of our mental health knowledge as well which would be great. Josh, thank you very much for your time. Do you have any closing messages before we leave the podcast? Working silence. Perfect. There you go. Simple as that, really. Simple as that. <laughs> Brilliant. Best, best, best uh, message for a podcast when there's no silence on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, but no, thank you very much for your time once again, Josh. Everyone, thanks for listening. Take care and goodbye.